Welcome to the Scale to Sale podcast, where we'll be hearing stories from successful founders across the Salesforce ISV ecosystem. My name's James Gastine, myself a former Salesforce ISV founder and now leading the charge at Unaric, where we're building the largest suite of apps on the Salesforce platform. In each episode, we'll hear from trailblazing founders, from how they got started all the way through to where they are today, or even when they exited. I've certainly enjoyed these conversations, and I hope you do too. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Neil Crawford, uh, one of my co-founders at Unaric, who previously was in the Salesforce space as founder of Distribution Engine. So before we hop into some of the questions, Neil, it'd be great to give us a little bit of a potted background as to your uh, experience in the Salesforce space. I believe you were probably even earlier in it than myself. So maybe give us a few words and then we can hop into some of the questions. Great. Thanks, James. Sure. Um, yeah. So I have been around in the ecosystem too long, probably, but since around 2010, I think um, I've come from a technical background. I was working at various places, including the likes of, of IBM, um, where I was doing kind of enterprise um, Java projects. And as I was doing these very long-running projects that were taking sometimes multiple years to, to go live, uh, a friend of mine started working for Salesforce, and she was kind of knocking out a, a release every week, going to different client sites mm -hmm. around the world and, and releasing new functionality to businesses. So I saw that happening and thought, this looks like the future. Um, so yeah, so I jumped into the Salesforce ecosystem as a freelancer initially. <laughs> working at various places, including the likes of Tequila, building apps for other people, um, and then met my uh, co-founder, another Neil, and we decided to, to launch an app together. And can you give us a bit more a bit more background as to like, you know, the idea behind the app? I mean, everyone's got a story about, you know, the app. Is it, was it scratching the itch, for example? Um, you know, it'd be great to hear about how you kind of came across the problem. So firstly, myself and Neil you know, just decided that we would like to try writing a product. So we began from that point of view saying, you know, wouldn't it be great to uh, leave the world of consulting and go into the world of, of product? So that was our kind of mm -hmm. initial point. Um, cool. And then from there, Neil had already been playing around a little bit and he'd looked on the Salesforce Ideas Exchange, which is where people list out all their various pain points. Um, and he'd looked at a couple of things, but one of them um, had come through from a, a guy, I think it was ING Direct, the bank, had kind of highlighted a problem around case management and people were cherry-picking cases. So Neil built a little prototype for him uh, about how he might solve that. By the time he built that, the guy had disappeared and he couldn't get hold of him again. But the idea was was sound. Um, so we decided to to take that idea and explore it a bit further and start building out, out from there. Um, and we knew a couple of people who had the same problem. So we really worked with them to to build out the, the requirements and build out the, the functionality. So then how did you go about acquiring your first customer? Was it kind of app exchange? Was it like network that you've been talking about? I mean, there's a big community vibe around Salesforce. So it'd be great to hear a bit more about the first few customers. Yeah, I think, you know, the Salesforce community is is very unique. And it was kind of surprising when I first got into that, just how tight knit it was, and it still is, but it was very tight knit in the early days. So as we'd gone around, you know, we come from a consulting background doing all kinds of freelancing. So um, we already knew a couple of people 
who were having that pain point. Um, and particularly, people in the US were very open just to telling us what they wanted. There was no sort mm. of guardedness that you sometimes get in Europe. So they just gave us exactly a big shopping list of everything they wanted. Um, and we went ahead and, and built it for them on the understanding that it would become a product and that they would they would, they would pay for it. So they were really happy. So they were effectively getting free consulting um, and a product developed to their specific needs. And we were lucky that those requirements were very transferable, that they were in a, in a very typical spot in sales operations. So, um, so that's how we got the first couple. And then beyond that, um, the app exchange was very effective and Dreamforce was also very effective in those early years. We've got... Mm -hmm. You get a little exhibitor stand. I can't remember how much it costs now. It's quite expensive, maybe $20,000 or something for this pretty skinny little uh, stand that me and Neil <laughs> stood outside of. That was pretty effective. People would just wander by and have a chat. Our initial marketing was a little vague. It, it just said, work, work less, do more. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, even that kind of ridiculous slogan was enough to get people just to wander by and say, well, what do you do? And we had lots of conversations there and picked up customers and, and took it from there. And like, you know, I understand that, you know, your first company was bootstrapped, but like mine in the early days, like what were mm. some of the kind of initial challenges you faced being bootstrapped and you know, how did you overcome them? Yeah, I think various challenges on the technical side, um, Salesforce wasn't quite as reliable as it is today. So mm. particularly with a kind of like distribution engine is quite heavy on, on processing and having jobs running um so things would just stop running at times and customers wouldn't really care if it was a salesforce issue all they know is that it doesn't work so we had to work quite hard to get the reliability that we needed and to look after customers whenever there were problems so mm -hmm. there were technical challenges to to overcome on the business side kind of a few false starts at different times you know we were initially encouraged to really try and work with the salesforce aes and the sales teams of salesforce i think it varies by product but for that particular product it wasn't really the right channel so we wasted quite a bit of time um trying to get salesforce to sell our product basically and, and it just wasn't appropriate um it was more appropriate for people that already had salesforce and they'd gone a bit further mm -hmm. along and then hit some pain points so yeah, we spent a bit of time kind of in that dead end, um, but mm -hmm. I guess to try it. So yeah, okay, brilliant. And then in terms of you know, you talked upon there about you know you know using the app exchange, using also um, <clears throat> Dreamforce. What other kind of the marketing strategies did you find were kind of most effective? You know, within the Salesforce community to kind of I'd say initially drive awareness and then leads. In the early days of the when the app exchange marketing program was first introduced, it was very effective. Um, mm -hmm. They did an email digest. They did a homepage promotion where you get your app yeah. on the homepage of the Salesforce App Exchange. Um, at one point, they even put people on the login page of, of Salesforce itself. So that would create a flurry of leads each time. So that was very effective. I think over time, it, as it's got more crowded, that's less and less the case. But uh, at that point, it, it was pretty effective. And I think the other the other thing is word of mouth and referrals, which is an enduring thing of you know any piece of technology or any any business probably mm -hmm. that just execute well just you get repeat business which is a great thing like i remember at one early dream forces we were scratching around you know waving flies in front of people at lunchtime and just trying all these kind of random <laughs> things uh, a wise a wise old owl just kind of spoke to us and said we we're just talking to him and he said you know what 
what have you got at the moment? Well, we're like, well, we've got one customer. He's like, okay, well, just look after that one customer. Do a great job there. Don't worry about all the other stuff. And it was good advice. You know, it was that, that customer in the end actually introduced and closed the deal on our behalf for another customer. <laughs> so he was Brilliant. right. We really looked after them, did a great job. They were really happy, became friendly, and then just, you know, stood at a Dreamforce booth. They were chatting with us. Some other quite big company came over to chat and they just took them away, had a coffee with them, talked about their experience and came back and said, yeah, that, that deal's closed. So Fantastic. Brilliant. And we even had customers appearing on our booth from time to time because we didn't have enough people to man the booth. So we'd sometimes get customers <laughs> to do it, which prospects love. They're like, oh, look, this customers love it so much that they're happy to stand on the booth and do, do booth duty. Um, yeah, that's so a great tip. Well. And then also, you know, your, your, product, your first product was kind of broadly horizontal. Like, obviously, there's a challenge there that, you know, it's, it's, it could be all things to all people. How did you maybe hone down on certain either ICPs or certain kind of specific use cases so you weren't just, you know, marketing to the entire internet? Yeah, I think that that is more challenging for horizontal apps. So it ended up reflecting the nature of the Salesforce customer base, so high on tech. And then it, as, as it moved along, a bit financial services came in there, some insurance, sometimes education, especially in the US, education is quite a kind of high volume business. It was hard to pinpoint a specific vertical and say, this is very specific for this vertical and because of our technical background we didn't have much marketing experience anyway so i think that was an area where we were inexperienced so probably never really cracked that nut um and it kind of remained somewhat horizontal now if you think about some of the kind of like you know the pearls of wisdom what were some of the kind of unexpected hurdles during your journey and kind of what lessons did you learn through them I suppose every everyone's founder journey is always going to have different different challenges. <laughs> There's probably themes in there, but I think unexpected things. Recruitment um, was more difficult than I thought it would be. I don't mm. suppose I hadn't really thought about it at all. But um, trying to get the right people with the right skill set, with the right sort of culture, with the right motivations in the right part of the world for the right salary. Um, <laughs> It's quite difficult to get right to build a team is is pretty mm. challenging and have them gel with each other and they work well with you. Um, so I think particularly as a, a technical founder, that idea of building a team, you know, it just requires experience. I'm not sure there's any shortcut to that to sort of learn what sorts of people are out there. And it, and it varies by phase as well. Like in the early stages, you need more generalists and then later on, you need more specialists. So that part, um, you know, we had a few false starts around recruiting the right sorts of people so that was a kind of education i think even you know as a as a founder you kind of learn a lot about yourself as well it's you know you don't always know if you've gone from a doing a particular role whether it's technical or anything else and then you go into this founder role where you're kind of doing everything i've never done sales before um you kind of learn what you're going to enjoy or what you find difficult mm -hmm. you learn about a lot about yourself um, and what parts you might want to do and what parts you might want to try and get somebody else to help with yeah totally i mean i think i think the hiring thing is also very tricky and i think you know our first businesses i think we were remote probably before covid kicked in so i had developers in poland and customers in the us and that was always quite tricky then to kind of manage it because there were probably certain members of the team who you put in front of customers certain members of the team where that you probably couldn't yeah and it was just kind of managing that interaction and then time zones which was 
I think, you know, quite, quite tricky, you know, yeah. especially as you're building a team and you've got, you know, contractors, consultants, full-timers, founders, and just trying to manage those types of dynamics as well as the kind of the cultural ones. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is tricky. I don't think anyone gets it right. And I think especially if, you know, a lot of folks I know who start their own business didn't really have any management experience. So they've yeah. kind of walked yeah. into this and they're kind of learning by doing, which yeah. is often the best way. But, uh, you know, you do break a few eggs. I suppose, you know, thinking back towards the early days, now that you've kind of gone through the journey, like, what would you maybe have done different differently in the early stages of, of your startup? I mean, it's always, it's always, uh, you know, hindsight is easy to kind of look back and say what you do differently. <laughs> I think if I knew then what I knew now, which is obviously possible, but I think I would try and go more quickly and yep. try and hire more quickly and try and hire the right people. If I had a, more awareness about my skill set versus what a business would need. I think I would have brought in a more commercial person mm -hmm. earlier, which we did try to do. It's hard to find the right people, especially when you're not experienced in that area. You kind of have this yeah. vague idea of what a salesy person might look like. I think in the very early days, I thought anybody wearing a, a shiny suit must be really good at sales. And then as I went on, I realized that's not what a good salesperson looks like. A good salesperson is just tenacious and diligent. You know, they're actually quite detail focused. It's not this sort of second-hand car salesman charisma mm. stuff. It's just, you know, the, the perseverance to, um, to get things done. But yeah, I think to, to have a commercial person would have been really, really helpful and, and maybe to go a little faster. I think on, on the sales side, I think it's tricky because customers will buy from founders the early stages, that just kind of yeah. charisma, the enthusiasm, the passion, you know, doing what it takes to get over the line. Yeah. It's quite hard to, to, to hire for because, again, you're then, they're not going to be the founder. They're not going to have maybe that relationship with the customer where mm -hmm. you've bought them drinks at Dreamforce. So that is a tricky bit to try and then hire employees who then will never be founders and yeah. the customers probably see them as, you know, employees. Yeah. And we'll probably, you know, treat them slightly differently. So, yeah, that, that's that's totally tr tricky. And then if you think about, like, you know, if you think about the future, like thinking around the, you know, how, how do you envision the future of Salesforce apps? And, you know, how, how do you see that kind of panning out? You know, I think probably when we started out, there's probably in the hundreds. There's now mm -hmm. around kind of 4,000 apps. Like, what's your view of the, the future of, you know, Salesforce app exchange and, and the ISV program? I think they'll continue to get more and more apps. So I think that... That process will will keep going. You know, marketing is going to get more important. I think you know we talked a bit about verticalization. I think as mm -hmm. things get more crowded, the apps need to get more targeted. So yeah. understanding who this application is for and get as tight as you can to that that group of people. So I think it's just that maturity leads to to specialization, and then overall, I think the landscape of technology will will move along as well. AI is everywhere, and it's still in that kind of hype phase where people are just putting it in for the sake of putting it in. But that's not to say there's not there's not value there. But and I think it's just a general theme of like the current situation is that humans are kind of adapting to the needs of technology. So humans are learning how to use a piece of software, and they're mm -hmm. learning what to click when and working around issues. But more and more the the technology is going to need to adapt to meet the needs of the human. So the human will just talk to it and ask what they want without having necessarily to learn it. So that user experience, I think, will keep getting better and better. So the mm -hmm. technology is, is much easier to use and 
Um, so apps will just need less and less friction. So to install it really quickly and it just starts working, it sets itself up yeah. almost. You can talk to it and it's not going to get there on day one. It doesn't mean jamming in AI for the sake of it is going to get people there. But there are now technologies available that are moving us closer to that goal. So I think that will just keep happening. And do you think maybe that's a, an ask a Salesforce to kind of uh, iron out some of the idiosyncrasies of the platform in terms of maybe usability, UX, UI? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's partly Salesforce and then there's opportunities for partners as well to, to help Salesforce. Like Salesforce has come so far so quickly. You know, it's been an amazing kind of thing to see. But it leaves gaps, which you know provide opportunities for partners. So I think for partners to be true partners to Salesforce and help them bridge some of these gaps, whether it's usability or performance or whatever the other gaps mm-hmm. are, for partners to be generally actually helping push Salesforce forward, I think is the kind of right way to go. So Neil, a bit like uh, myself, you know, you and I are talking to you know ISV founders on a pretty regular basis. It'd be great to hear a little bit more about like you know what you're hearing from them, what they're talking about what their challenges are, um, especially maybe with that more kind of product uh, engineering lens on that you've got. Yeah, so we've talked to a whole bunch of founders now, which has been great. Um, I think there's various types of challenges, but for the uh, for the earlier stage ones, there's, there's a bunch of people that have built really nice um, products or they're very early on or they just nearly completed their products. And for them, it's all about that initial traction. How are they going to find those first few customers and how are they going to start building out this as a business rather than just a product so for them Mm -hmm. it's just getting started and it's a little harder for those guys now because it is more crowded so it's a little harder for them to get attention but they're just going to have to hustle and find those first few customers on linkedin or wherever it is i think for others that are a bit further along they do have various challenges and i think for me i sort of bucket them all under resource constraints most of them know what they need to do whether mm-hmm. it's marketing or whether it's more partnerships or working with Salesforce or nurturing the SIs, they've got a wish list of things they would like to do, but they just don't have the manpower to do it. So that's pretty common. And that's part of mm-hmm. the, the reason really why we're, we're building Unaric now is to, to help those kinds of, of founders have those resources so that we can build those in a, in a shared way that um, a whole bunch of people can work together and have those the capacity to do those things, whether it is marketing or uh, partner enablement or whatever else it might be. But it's just hard as a, as a bootstrapped company. There's no way you can do everything. And some of those things just mm-hmm. need a lot of legwork to do them well. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I see sometimes is that there's App Exchange may have been very successful founders for a number of years. And then yeah. through the number of apps hitting the App Exchange, plus some of the changes to the algorithm and the paid programs. Yeah. All of a sudden, the leads coming through, either the quality's gone down, the numbers gone down, or both. And therefore, it's like, okay, well, what do we do now to generate demand? Because we've never really had yeah. to capture demand, right? Like, how do we capture and generate demand now that, you know, we're moving away from the app exchange being 100% of lead volume to being 50%? Yeah. Like, how do, yeah. how do we fill it up? Yeah. And I think that's definitely the kind of like the, uh, the oh shit moment when it's kind of like, you know, we, we've got to find a new way to generate demand. And then, you know, sometimes I've seen founders think about, other types but again it's less um scalable you know events events can be great but again they take a lot of planning and it's mm. a bit hit or miss so you know i remember in my first business we had a booth at dreamforce and we got a three threefold roi in 2016 in 2017 we didn't you know and it was like what was the difference there was it the, the fact that in you know 2016 we we're opposite microsoft pure serendipity in 2017 we weren't 
uh, you know, you, you kind of have one data point, you double down on it, and then sometimes you don't get the same results. Yep, I totally agree. And my, as a, as an aside, my first ever Dreamforce before we got a booth, myself and Neil had flyers printed out, and uh, we we went to the breakfast thing. We decided the breakfast was where we were going to generate leads, so we sat around this breakfast table. But one morning we got there a little bit late, but there was there was just a bunch of people sat at the breakfast table. We started handing out all these flyers, giving the pitch for what the product did, and then finally we got around to asking the questions of what did they do, and it turned out they were the, cr- the cleaning crew for, for Dreamforce. <laughs> this is like twenty minutes after the pitch, so yeah. Brilliant. You've got to know your audience. Yeah, exactly. And then kind of lastly, Neil, just to kind of wrap up, what's this? What's one piece of advice you wish someone had given you when you were just starting out as a Salesforce ISV founder? And fortunately, you can't reuse the example you gave us earlier along about looking after your one customer. <laughs> I mean, we did we did try and take various pieces of advice early on. It's, it's hard to pick and choose the right advice is one is one uh, pain point early on but i think if i had to go back and give myself some uh, <laughs> advice i think it would probably be around the importance of of marketing and the importance of really tightening up who you're serving i think there's a yep. there's a temptation as a technical founder to try and help everyone to feel like oh this person's got a problem i can help them with that this person which does help to grow and it's very counterintuitive to say no no i'm just going to pick this sliver of people and i'm only going to help these people and i'm not going to help these people it doesn't it feels very counterintuitive um, but that's what's needed in order to to scale so to try and get that message home to earlier neil would be my my time traveling advice yeah well i suppose you and i both came from like a professional services world where mm. the product is infinitely malleable yeah. I was in strategy, you're in technology. I think yeah. that the, the trick there is, like you said, is to be able to say no to things. And I'm sure there's probably, and that has done this, the tighter the product market fit, the better the retention rates, or the, the profitability, the cheaper the acquisition costs. And I remember in the early days, we were kind of saying yes and you know, to all sorts of requirements and kind of yeah. building it out, building a DLC to win a deal. And then you think, oh, now I've got to maintain yeah. only one customer wants it. Yeah. Um, it is tricky. And I think maybe the, the bit behind that is, you know, some of the things that you talk about sometimes are just really focusing and having like, okay, what is that really small, you know, bit of feature functionality that can get started mm. that everybody wants and then start to build as opposed to, you know, I think in my first business, we launched with a pretty comprehensive feature set that we then kind of whittled down and then started to kind of build up again. Yeah. And I think through having a broader feature set, sometimes it does lend itself to saying yes, you know, yes, a bit too much. Yeah, and it's part of the nature of bootstrapping as well because you need the revenue to keep going. So you're slightly yeah. forced into that situation. I think <laughs> if you were taking funding, it's easier to be narrower. Great stuff. Well, look, Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. You. And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, connecting again in the future. Perfect. Cheers, James. Cheers. Cheers.